Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Alison McGuire. I'm the chair of the uh, Department of Social Policy, who have, uh, with great pleasure, invited David Willits to um, give us a talk on um, one of his many publications, the most recent one, I think, uh, his book, The Pinch, uh, which I'll just borrow for a moment, which is on sale outside in the foyer. If um, his talk stimulates you enough to purchase it, then you can vote with your feet. Um, I don't think David needs much in introduction, um, shadow um, secretary for universities and learning, the MP for haven't, um, been described as many things, including a public intellectual, um, of which we're going to get some, reap some benefits tonight. Uh, David will talk until um, about 7.45, which should leave more than enough time for questions up until uh, about 8 o'clock. And I think, uh, David, on that, it is my pleasure to introduce you to the audience. Great. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity of uh, coming here to speak to this suitably generationally mixed audience about my, my book, which is about fairness between the generations. But as would only be right for an LSE audience, I'm particularly going to take you through the hard figures about what I believe to be the, the distribution of income and wealth between the ages. That's the different age groups in our society. That's the sort of central part of the talk today. And as you can see from the title of this talk and of my book, my central argument is very simple, that a group uh, currently in the middle of society, the baby boomers to which I belong, people born between 1945 and 1965 roughly, have ended up with owning a large amount of the uh, assets and property in our society and also doing well out of the labour market as well. Uh, Let's just get some of the demographics right, because uh, there's the famous remark, demography is destiny. There's a belief that demographics can tell us a lot about the future simply by drawing on the past. And a lot of the great demographers attached particular importance to the cycle of large and then small generations. Uh, Thomas Malthus, who thought that large generations would be uh, so impoverished that it would be followed by small generations. The same was the argument of probably the first great sociologist, Auguste Comte, and most recently, one of the first demographers to consider the impact of the baby boom, Richard Easterlin, argued that the large generation of baby boomers would have a very tough time. And the one kind of question we might think about this evening and perhaps come back to in discussions is, would you rather be born in a large cohort or a small cohort? Well, the conventional answer of all these experts was better to be born in a small cohort. The first reversal of that conventional wisdom came from Keynes. And Keynes, who was got very interested in demography at the same time as he was writing the general theory, for Keynes it was the other way around. And growing populations, large cohorts that were borrowing and spending were good for growth, and shrinking populations with small, small cohorts were bad for growth. And one of the reasons for the uh, concerns, the underlying, some of the economics behind the general theory and some of the demography behind the theory was a worry about what he saw as Britain's demographic trends of a shrinking population because of the low birth rate. And he made a, his quotation here is a suitably salutary uh, note of caution for anyone who wishes to talk confidently about demographic trends. He said in 1937 uh, that, he, that we know much more securely than we know almost anything else uh, that we should be faced in a very short time with a stationary or a declining level. Now let's see what actually happened. He said that at that point when the blue graph was just heading below 700,000, he said that just before probably the, bi the biggest baby boom that 20th century Britain saw. Now I don't uh, think we've got a pointer, but let me... This chart, which is essentially the number of babies born in Britain from 1930 to the present day, I think this tells us more information about post-war Britain. I don't think the mouse is going to do it. Don't worry. Um, 
I think this tells us more about post-war Britain than any other single chart that you can imagine. First of all, it tells us on the left-hand side how grim things were in the 1930s, very low birth rates. Now, those low birth rates in the 1930s were then followed by a baby boom, which had two peaks. And different countries have baby booms in different shapes. But for my purposes, and there's no kind of right answer, but for my purposes, the baby boom comprises the peak of the, in 1947. It then falls a bit, but its, its low point in the middle of the baby boom, 800,000 births, was still higher than it managed in the subsequent peak of the next cycle reaching a second peak in 1964. So my working definition of the baby boomers is born between 1945 and 65. Those youngsters born in 1947 are the ones who walked down Carnaby Street in their bell bottoms and bought Beatles CDs. The ones in the second peak are the ones who uh, bought uh, punk music and rioted against the poll tax. Um, after the second peak, you then had a dramatic fall in the birth rate, down to a low point in 1976. Now, for those of you who think that, by and large, um, these economic and demographic explanations are being carrying too much weight, you might just note that the peaks in 1947 and 64 followed very cold winters, and the low point in 1976 followed a very hot summer. That would be the other explanation of these trends, but we should note that and pass on. Um, now... This tells me, this I think also tells us about how Margaret Thatcher controlled public spending. And it tells us how Margaret Thatcher controlled public spending because what it tells us is that when she was in office, and remember, so this was the 1980s and 90s, you had got very few pensioners coming through. You've got a very low interwar birth rate. So there was virtually no increase in pension expenditure because the number of pensioners was very low. And at the same time, because you'd had this big decline in the birth rate in the 70s, you'd got relatively modest pressures on education spending for kids as well. So this was a, this was a time when the, you'd got a surge of the population in the middle of, the, of, the, of their working lives. You've got, it's that second peak of the baby boom where the people, the young people who went into the jobs market in the 1980s and drove the structure of change in the British economy with very few pensioners behind them and very few children coming after them. Very favourable circumstances for the control of public spending. And we then had this, uh, those, and that low birth rate in the late 70s, that low peak in 1976 meant, if you, and if you think of employers being used to a particular level of uh, labour coming through, 25, 30 years on, that was the gap in the, in the number of young workers, which relates to the immigration surge in the beginning of the 21st century. You've then got what I call Generation Y, and we've then got this latest and new and unexpected surge in the birth rate, roughly since 2001, the millennials. Now, as I say, this is not... This is just a set of categories. Other people can come up with different categories. One of the main reasons of these categories is just so that you can hold me to account and we can be held to account. This is an attempt. If you're trying to attempt an explanation, you have to be precise about your terms. Uh, some people think the boomers are just that first little surge in the birth rate, but I don't think that captures the full economic significance of what's going on. So that is the, that is the background to what we're talking about. And you can see how large the baby boom was. The increase in the total number of people as a result of the baby boom compared with the underlying trend of 800,000 is far in excess, for example, of the total British dead during the Second World War of about 400,000. Now, as the baby boomers work their way through the uh, stages of the life cycle, you have changes in the median age of the population, and we're in 2010 at a rather unusual, neat point. One of the things that prompts my book now. We've got a median age of 40 and average life expectancy of 80. So the middle person in Britain is halfway through their life. In other words, if we talk about things happening up to 2050, we're talking about events which will probably be experienced, barring extraordinary developments, by the majority of the British population. And because of my definition of the baby boom, 1945 to 1965, 
We're also at the, the this is the year when uh, the uh, the first male baby boomers reach pension age of uh, of 65. So it's a good moment to take stock and to consider the balance between the generations, which is really the theme of my book, the intergenerational contract. And my argument is that what families do and what nation states do and what holds a society together are exchanges between the generations. And at any one moment, it looks as if one group are sustaining another group. To put it in a very simple model of three generations, the hunters in the middle, uh, the hunter-gatherers in the middle, if you imagine a very primitive society, are sustaining very old people who aren't able any longer to collect food for themselves and very young children. Um, and I argue that that's what families do and it's what governments do. They've even studied this, again I'm trying to look behind governments to the most natural and primitive way you can imagine it. They've even studied surviving hunter-gatherer tribes in Latin America and Africa and measured their calorie intake, the calorie production and consumption, how many calories they consume per year compared with the amount of calories they generate by hunting or gathering. And you might just, uh, and what happens is of course young children are very heavy net consumers of calories, consuming many more calories than they generate. Uh, any parent here could tell you that. But because in, because in um, human beings go for particularly high-value food that requires quite a lot of skill and training to get to that food, the, they carry on consuming more calories than they're generating for rather longer. They then become net contributors of calories, if you like, hunting and gathering more calories than they're consuming, until as they get older their hunting efficiency declines and they start once more being net recipients of calories from others. And it's quite interesting what the anthropologists have calculated the, the key ages as being, and you may recognize them from our modern welfare state. The point at which you become a net contributor of calories, they reckon, is about 18, and the point at which you go into net deficit on calories, once more become a net consumer, is when you're about 65, even in relatively primitive tribes. And although that is what is generations exchanging with each other. As Paul Samuelson said in his classic article in 1958, you can equally think of it as um, exchanges that net out for any one individual over his or her life cycle. What you're doing is using the family or the tribe to transfer your own consumption to spread it out more evenly. Now, I try in an, in an amateurish way, and there are people who've thought about this much more rigorously than I have, to try describe what some of these exchanges are between the generations and I uh, summarise some of them here, the kind of exchanges we all recognise from families and um, they're both direct exchanges like the first one, we care for our children when they're young and hope they'll care for us when they're old, but there are other patterns like the replication of behaviour, trying to pass on benefits from children to grandchildren, um, exchanges of care. Those are the kind, that's the kind of cat's cradle of mutual obligations which I think lies at the heart of a family, lies at the, but it also lies at the heart of a society. Indeed, I think it lies at the heart of what governments do as well. And it's quite interesting, one of the great conservative thinkers, Edmund Burke, when trying to define in his reflections on the revolution in France what governments do, he didn't come up with a definition of the night watchman state and protecting security. Important though those functions are, his account of the of the uh, function of government is that it's a contract um, between the generations, a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. His account of what government did as well was maintain an intergenerational contract. Now so far, I've offered you a kind of stable static model of exchanges between different cohorts which net out to an equilibrium over the entire life cycle, which are partly delivered within families, within tribes of hunter-gatherers, and by governments. But I also showed you at the beginning that extraordinary surge in the birth rate in Britain post-war. Other countries had their birth rates at different times. And 
the challenge in my book is, well, does being a great big cohort, the disruptive effect of being a great big cohort, think of you like a river, a river bursting its banks with a storm surge going through it, does that sheer fact of being a very big cohort uh, cause risk the fracturing of the social contract? Um, and I'll give you a very simple example of that. Imagine you're a government with a rule that you balance the budget over the economic cycle, and imagine that you have stable public expenditure commitments. So you have a stable commitment to the amount of education a child should get, the amount of pension an old person should get. Uh, so far, so good. And then imagine that you have a very large cohort that works its way through the cycle, like in one of the classic images, like a python swallowing a pig. So what happens with your ba balanced budget rule? When all these youngsters, when, when, all, when this large cohort of kids, there are extra pressures on education because there's more youngsters going through education and perhaps more child benefit or whatever. So public expenditure on young people rises and because you've got a balanced budget rule, and because you've got stable public spending commitments, taxes have to rise in order to ensure that you can meet these obligations. Then your very large cohort are in the middle of the life cycle, when they're all at work. They're all working, generating output. There are smaller cohorts on either side of them, so there's low, you can, your education bill falls because there aren't so many kids. Your pension bill hasn't yet increased, and you've got an increase in tax revenues because you've got more producers in the middle. So consistent with your balanced budget rule, you can bring down tax per person. And then they retire when you have a surge in the number of pensioners. The number of workers falls again because the large cohort is working its way through the system. The number of workers falls. The, number, the expenditure on pensions rises. It's the same expenditure on pensions per person, but there's more individuals reach that stage of the life cycle. So tax on the working population has to rise. So in this very simple thought experiment, a rule of balancing the budget across the economic cycle, plus stable public expenditure policies, and if you follow the effect of a large cohort through, it seems to have lots of spending on its education when they're young, and low taxes when they're working, and lots of spending on their pensions when they're older. So it's those type of simple models that I think we have, to, we have to have at the back of our mind as we try to work out what the consequences of being a large cohort might be. Do I see a laser pen? That'd be brilliant. That'd be great. And in fact, you've just at the right moment. Thanks very much. Um, now, I'm going to look in turn, and this, is, this has come at exactly the right moment, because we're now going to get into the, the sort of um, the heavier evidence from the welfare state, from the labour market, from, the property, from property ownership of what I think has been happening uh, for, the lab for the baby boomers. And the, uh, this evidence comes from a variety of sources, but I should pay a particular tribute to um, academics at the LSE from whom I've drawn, people like John Hills and Nick Barr, and um, researchers who've helped me with it, people like Chris Cook, who is here in the front row now with the Financial Times, and Ryan Jensen, who's at the LSE. So this comes from a lot of support from others. This is a John Hills table where he tried to calculate for different cohorts how you would do from the welfare state. And again, you have to make heroic assumptions about public expenditure commitments in the future, what will happen to taxes. And what you see is the cohorts at the beginning of the century do incredibly well because they are around and in, and in benefit from big growth of the welfare state under Lloyd George and then under Attlee without having to pay fully for it. But then the baby boomer cohorts through here, they do pretty well. Um, people, my exact generation, 56, 61, 118% receipts compared with tax. But then what he showed in his calculations is for the generations coming on afterwards, the amount of tax they pay exceeds the amount they receive from the welfare state on his, on his assumptions. Um, so we can see how it may, a welfare state, if you feed through that some of these assumptions, might benefit some cohorts at the expense of others. You can also see how, as the baby boomers work their way through the life cycle, they may 
drive up expenditure on public expenditure programs. Just keep, again, keep the commitments constant, but just factor in changes in the demographics. And this is the latest set of figures from the Treasury 2008, tracking long-term fiscal trends, and they show all these different age-related items of expenditure growing. Um, and interestingly, they've got some education uh, growth because of their assumptions about uh, the increase in the birth rate and higher rates of immigration. But if you put all that together, then doing nothing, simply allowing public expenditure commitments to flow through the system, these main classic programs of the welfare state, which are consuming about 20% of GDP in public expenditure, roughly now, in 50 years' time, are adding more than 6% of GDP to public spending. Now, the Treasury, for reasons which I do not understand and which they have not divulged to me when I have tabled parliamentary questions, assume that what they call non-age-related public spending falls to miraculously offset most of this increase, um, which seems to involve assumptions like, for example, benefits for working-age people grow by prices even while benefits for uh, uh, future older people grow by earnings. But... That is a very simple measure of what happens to public spending, even on the Treasury's own figures, as a result of generational change. So I've talked about some of the figures for the, jobs, uh, for the welfare state. Let's now look about how different cohorts are affected in the jobs market. Um, I have in the book some new calculations. We've gone back to the raw data from successive earnings surveys on what happened to the ratio of earnings in 1974 someone in their 50s earned 4% more than someone in their 20s, late 20s, now it's 35% more. And one might speculate that that's the effect of globalisation driving down relative wages of younger workers. Um, we've also got in this recession, something I'll show you a chart of in a moment, a very dramatic, it's pushed forward a very dramatic shift in the composition of employment. Employment amongst the over 50s has continued to rise during this recession, whilst employment amongst the under 25s has continued to fall. And uh, let me go straight on, actually, to this chart, which is really what I'm referring to. So here is taking 1992 as a base, basing it as 100, here are changes in employment for different age groups. So this, this increase in employment amongst the over 50s, that's the, that's the overall picture for employment, slight fall for 25 to 49s, and for 24 and unders falling a lot. Now there's, as, a, as proportions of total employment. Now there's lots of stories behind this, changes in the size of demographics, changes in participation in workforce, uh, changes in participation in education, but nevertheless, I think it's a striking example of a, of a change in the labour market as well. So I've shown you a couple of tables with the welfare state effects of this. I've shown you a couple of tables with labour market effects. Now let's turn to wealth and the distribution of assets. And very roughly, there's about 6.7 trillion of, uh, financial, uh, of wealth in the country, divided between liquid financial assets, owner-occupied housing, sort of buy-to-let physical assets like that, pensions. Uh, here are... Now, I'm now going to give you a variety of snapshots. They are not all consistent with each other because they come from different databases. Some have different age groups than others. Some have happened at different times. They are measured at different times. There are different treatments of second homes and buy-to-let properties and all that. But here are some new figures which don't actually appear in the book, which the, the Pensions Policy Institute has prepared for me, and showing uh, housing wealth. And you can see... Uh, in this rather small cohort, this is not quite the same as my definition of the baby boomers, this is women aged 50 to 60 and men aged 50 to 65, so rather smaller than my, than my definition of the baby boomers, but an extraordinary concentration of net housing wealth, so they own um, almost a half of housing wealth on this particular set of measures. I've also got here some new estimates of pension wealth. Now, I should explain these include public, all public sector pensions, including unfunded public sector pensions. So it's not quite consistent with some of the other measures of pensions. It excludes state benefits. Uh, but as it's got public sector pensions, which is one of the few areas where 
generous final salary schemes survive for younger workers. You might expect this, if anything, to flatten out the effect. And what have you got there? You've got more than half of all pension wealth uh, belonging, 58%, belonging to my definition of the baby boomers. So a concentration of pensions wealth in the hands of the baby boomers as well. You've got from uh, John Hill's recent excellent report on equality, a different measure. He's got a different measure of wealth. It, it includes literal physical property we've got in our houses, furniture and everything. But again, a very, very interesting concentration with some quite dramatic figures for wealth per person um, amongst the baby boomers. And I try, as a layman, and there are people in this hall today who will be able to do it much better than me, I tried as a layman just trying to work through uh, to achieve some kind of consistent measure of um, assets. And this is what I came up with uh, as my estimates of the distribution of wealth in different forms. Uh, I should explain different from the previous pension measures, for example, because it's only funded pensions in the private sector, it's not public sector pensions. So as I say, they're not all, if you go away, they're not all, uh, they're, as they're using da different databases, they're slightly different calculations, but that's what I reckon, that they, that again, the baby boomers look to own about half of all the wealth. Now, why has this happened? And there have been a range of explanations we can offer. Um, inflation came at the right time for the baby boomers. First of all, the baby boomers borrow to buy their houses, get on the housing market, and then inflation comes along to wipe out the cost of their mortgages rather conveniently so that the um, mortgage falls in real terms and the house rises, uh, the value of the house rises. So inflation came at the right time. Improvements in life expectancy came at the right time as well, because if you think, if you've got a pension promise denominated by a chronological age, it's not unlike the effects, uh, and think through the effects of a change in life expectancy, it's not unlike the effects of inflation when you have prices denominated in nominal terms. If you've got a promise to pay somebody money after the age of 60 or 65, and you've then got big improvements in life expectancy for people aged over 60 or 65, that is a big shift in the value of that promise. So the improvements in life expectancy amongst uh, older people came at the right uh, time for them too. Um, we've had regulation of pensions to protect then the pension rights that uh, baby boomers and older workers have built up, but at the same time probably with the offsetting effect of deterring companies from offering pension promises like that for younger workers. Um, so that's happened as well. And even for the bank bailout, you could argue that the costs are going to be borne by future taxpayers, younger workers, but the beneficiaries are the people whose uh, savings, pensions, depended on the, um, the debt and other assets that they held through the banking system. So you can explain, you can draw a range of, of sort of almost random economic events between, you, between them to explain why this is what I've been showing you is not simply the normal pattern of the, <coughs> why it's not simply the normal pattern of the life cycle with, uh, in which you might expect perhaps wealth to grow and then shrink, there may be particular reasons why this cohort has done very well out of it. Now let's get to the really uh, emotive stuff though, which is why has it worked so well for the baby boomers? Well perhaps they're just lucky and some of these effects are not ones for which you can claim the baby boomers take responsibility. Globalisation, the opening up of the world labour market, driving down the wages of younger workers in the, relative to older workers in the past 10 or 20 years, that wasn't a, a plot by the baby boomers. Well, are they selfish? Well, I'm not sort of trying to attribute motives to the baby boomers. We've got, there are interesting debates in the media about why this has happened. I'm really trying to establish the facts that something has happened so that we can then think about what the consequences are. Um, there is a rational argument that what the baby boomers have been doing is redistributing resources in a world where GDP per head grows. Young, the younger generation, the future, are going to be better off. So they're being um, nice and uh, egalitarian and taking from the rich, rich future and giving it to the poor present. Or perhaps that they're simply unaware 
that we are so sensitive in Britain to analyses of income and wealth by social class within assuming a kind of shared chronological position. So, and there's so many analyses of, on that dimension that we just don't think of things on a generational dimension. And I would argue that one of the reasons why it seems to me very possible that we are unaware of what's going on is that we live in a society which is more segregated by age. This is what Karl Mannheim predicted as what would happen in, a, in the modern world. Uh, we're more segregated in the labour market. We're quite likely to work in workplaces with people the same age as ourselves. We're increasingly age segregated by where we live. You're most likely to uh, live in housing alongside people that you already know, uh, people of your same age. And in Britain in particular, it looks as if we are, when you ask people about intergenerational mixing, there's quite a lot of feeling that there aren't enough opportunities for older people and younger people to get together. We've got here a total of 76% of adults in the UK agreeing either strongly or somewhat that there aren't enough opportunities for people from different ages to uh, be together. And that, I think, increases distrust and disengagement between the generations. Um, Weariness by younger, older generations of younger generations and vice versa. I think this is a slightly uh, depressing slide from a survey asking, um, as I say, adults if they would intervene if they saw 14-year-olds vandalising a bus shelter. British adults much more wary of that than on the continent. So my argument, and the reason why I've written the book, is that it's partly that we are a nation where links between the generations are weaker, that they appear to be weakening more than in some other European countries, and, a greater, and there is a failure to understand the position of different generations. And this is the kind of optimist in me. So I think this is partly just an exercise in kind of raising people's awareness of the different lives and different life chances of successive generations. And I believe that the baby boomers are susceptible to these appeals. Some people say to me, well, why should the baby boomers do anything about the younger generation? Why should they care about the younger generation? Well, I believe that the baby boomers are susceptible to these appeals. We clearly care about our own kids, but I think we are also open to um, appeals to the interests of the future generation as a whole. And there's been some very interesting empirical research on this in which people are invited to imagine that they're the board of directors of a forestry company. And you've got a patch of woodland, and the question is whether to cut down the trees. And you're given three reasons for not cutting down the trees. The first reason for not cutting down the trees is because if you delay cutting down the trees, you save them up for the future, you will increase the total long-term profitability of the business and appeal to rational self-interest. Well, that has some influence on people, but not massive. Then secondly, you say, OK, you're the board of the directors, we're going to ask you not to cut down the trees so that the neighbouring community can enjoy the amenity of this patch of woodland. It's a kind of horizontal altruism allow people to enjoy the woodland. That has some effect, but not a massive effect on behaviour. Then the third argument you deploy is you say, the only reason why you've got this woodland is because previous generations left this woodland for you, and you have a similar obligation to pass it on to future generations so that they can enjoy it. That's the argument which affects behaviour. That scores much more highly as a behaviour influencer than either of the other two types of argument. And this is where, and it's a chapter in the book, and it's great to see Professor Binmore here, because it's his thinking that has above all influenced me in that chapter. This is where I think that what we understand about reciprocal altruism and the emergence of, uh, uh, and, and that, that as being at the, at the heart of our understanding of morality and ethics. The argument in the book is that the form of reciprocal altruism which matters most for social cohesion is exchanges between the generations. And uh, I believe that that's a, an appeal to which people respond. And if you do an opinion poll asking people indeed, now I'm after all uh, a member of parliament, I'm a politician, asking people about what kind of policies that they care for, they care about policies for the long term, 
much more than they care about parties based on ideology. So that is a very quick run-through of some of, the, some of the arguments in my book with extra data uh, for, uh, uh, on particularly on the distribution of income and wealth between the generations. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David. Um, questions from the floor? I think we have some roving mics, so if you put your hand up, um, I'm sure David would be happy. There's a question over here about five rows back. Yeah, aside from um, a healthy dose of inflation and possibly death panels, um, what, what, you know, what, is the, what are the public policy? Somebody didn't like that. Um, what are the public policy responses, um, to, you know, to, to to this to this issue? How can we kind of, I guess, redistribute wealth back? Well, I, I deliberately wrote the book as a, an exercise in. I mean, I, I wanted a narrative and an explanation of what was happening, and I didn't want to get myself um, tra trapped in a ten-point plan. I've written enough ten-point plans in my time, um, but I do think some consequences do indeed follow. Uh, Clearly, the burden of the budget deficit, I mean, I think it's, it's, this is kind of the argument, the logic behind my party's poster last year with the baby with the debt round its neck. Only in the last week, the government issued government bonds with a maturity date of 2034. So that's, you know, the interest on that debt is going to be borne by the younger generation. I think that's one area. I think it shows the importance of uh, raising the pension age. And of course, um, we've proposed going further and faster on that in the, uh, at our last body conference. I think something else that it that shows, and I don't discuss, didn't discuss this in the presentation, but there's a chapter in the book, is one of the other anxieties about the younger generation is whether they'll have this, enjoy the same kind of opportunities, the same kind of social mobility that my generation enjoyed. And creating a more mobile society, which is education policies and beyond. But that is, I think, a legitimate area of public policy. Um, I mean, you can go further into trying to make it easier for younger people to get started on the housing ladder. But I, I think, and I hope we'll now get a debate about what the policy implications are, but, but my view is that there are some, some like that that do emerge pretty clearly from this sort of analysis. Kitty, and then person behind. Um, in your Kitty Stewart LSE, uh, in your in your talk, you you sort of um, uh, counterpose, I suppose, this sort of analysis, saying that well, there's a lot of analysis done on redistribution across, between social classes, between higher income and lower income groups, um, and this is something we've missed. But aren't those two things related? And is it isn't it very important that you look within? Yes, you say the baby boomer generation have done very well. But clearly, there are huge inequalities within that generation. And they're going to be able to, when we talk about social mobility, that's going to affect social mobility because they're going to be able to pass this wealth on to their children, whereas the children who, of the, parent, the parents who haven't done so well won't be able to. So you say education might be one of the ways, but surely also redistributing wealth within that generation is very important. And policies like inheritance tax, higher rates of inheritance tax might also be considered. The, yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that you can do you can analyze this in other dimensions. And then, of course, there are connections between um, intra-generational unfairnesses and the intergenerational transmission of advantage and disadvantage. Uh, I think, but for me as a conservative, I think it'd be bad to get into the mindset that families doing their best for their kids is a kind of part of the problem. Um, I think families trying to do their best for their kids helps make the world go round. And, but what I do think is that there is a role for government as well in maintaining a fair deal between the generations. And I think governments should consider, or governments have a responsibility not to um, shift around the burden of, uh, shift around fiscal burdens between generations in ways that are unfair. 
I think they have a responsibility on overall energy policy. I rather suspect that my generation will have ended up consuming more energy and with a bigger impact on the environment around us than either generations before or after. So I think it's better if governments try to do their fair share by discharging areas where they clearly have a responsibility rather than trying to, and of course education should be the third thing, um, and the poten potential for um, high quality education to offset some of the advantages that, that families may transmit. I think it's better that governments try to do their bit than devote their energies to try to stop families doing the family's bit. I'd like to focus on the wording that you have on the slide there as to <clears throat> why they should give it back. I think if you work from the premise that people are selfish, then nobody really likes giving anything back. Um, so wouldn't it be more maybe productive or, or the chances of it working, wouldn't it be higher if you, found a way, <clears throat> if you found a way of persuading younger people or giving younger people good arguments um, to use against older people to say that we've been screwed, so therefore you've got to help me out. I mean, I, my nephew, 19 years old, says that my generation has ruined the planet and he's going to have to cope with the costs of that. What kind of arguments should we be giving younger right. people so that they can, they can support their case? Well, it's, um, it's these kind of uh, exchanges that I try to capture. But there's a... There's a I, I do think that... People have a genuine interest in their kids and grandchildren. Uh, but if that isn't enough, there is, you can, there's also the great American bumper sticker, which, is, which says, be nice to your kids, they choose your nursing home. <laughs> and part of the argument is that the baby boomers, we've done well so far, but it doesn't follow that we will carry on doing well. There is, I tell him, stay in the introduction of the book, describe the story of uh, the Athenian uh, lawmaker Solon, um, who called, uh, who visited Croesus, king of Lydia, then the richest man of his age. And uh, Croesus was surprised that Solon was not more impressed by Croesus's extraordinary good fortune and wealth and running the monarch of this extraordinary. Um, country and Solon said I call no man lucky until he is dead and subsequently Croesus the, it was, his country was invaded by the Persians he was taken into captivity his family were all taken into captivity he lost everything so part of this even on your very narrow terms of what about the self-interest my view is that there will come a point when we baby boomers are frail, when in reality the real resource transfer is to be the younger generation whose work and the resource that they're generating is going to be transferred to us as our pensions and our health care. And we should honour them now because that increases the chance that they will honour us when we need them. One of the, quoting, getting close to quoting one of the Ten Commandments, but that's the thought. There's somebody on our left here. Um, yeah. If I could ask your views on the funding of infrastructure, particularly infrastructure that would be was necessary to save energy, to keep us warm when the energy supplies uh, run out, and the potential for tapping into the wealth of those over the age of 65, not just to keep themselves warm, but to keep uh, the rest of the community warm. I'm thinking of yeah. infrastructure bonds and trying to f compensate for the decline in yeah. resources for investment. Yeah. I think that's a very good example as well. Like one could have added that to the list on the bullet. I think it is worthwhile endowing future generations with, with kit. And I think that's one of the great refutations of the argument that uh, future generations will be richer than us. Uh, the Victorians didn't build their sewage systems out of papier-mâché and cheap plaster, saying, well, they'll last 25 years, and by then people will be richer than us, and they'll be able to do something different. And medieval craftsmen did not build cathedrals, saying, well, they'll last 50 or 100 years, but then people will be richer, and they'll have concrete, and say, we don't need to worry about it standing up for very long. Uh, we are the beneficiaries of 
a large amount of physical capital with which we have been endowed by people who did not sit around saying, well, we won't bother giving this to the future generations because they'll be richer. And so because we are the beneficiaries of capital bequeathed to us by people with less income than we have now, I think we have a similar obligation, even if, and I don't, I mean, I still, clearly it's the kind of engine of Western capitalist growth is not going to be completely turned off, even if it doesn't do quite so well in the next few years or decades. But I think similarly we have an obligation to pass on to future generations kit infrastructure, um, just as we've benefited from infrastructure. Um, and the fact that we hope that future generations will be richer does not escape that obligation. And although I could have done more on this in the book, I do have a brief discussion of, you know, Britain's very low levels of saving and physical investment, which I think suggests that we are not currently discharging that obligation. There were two on the far end, and then we'll come back to the middle. Thank you. That was a really interesting talk. Thank you very much. I really, I really enjoyed it. And I think, basically, I think your argument's completely right. Um, but I think there's, I'd like to hear your response to saying that I think it's a bit partial. Um, and I'm very glad you've got that screen up at the moment, um, because I think the thing you've forgotten about is care. Um, and the resources you're talking about are entirely physical and monetary ones. But there have also been huge changes over the period you're talking about in how people are cared for and their needs for that. Um, and you could talk about the baby boomers actually has been poorer in terms of the care, the claims that they have on the care on care from younger generations than previous generations had, because those younger generations are now all at work. The women in those generations are now working. It's the baby boomers who set the practice. One of the reasons that they are so much richer is that women going to work raise house prices, um, and therefore their accumulated wealth is so much greater and their pension wealth for the, for the same reason. Um, I think there is a little bit missing without a gender story in that. And I think it also affects um, what when you talk about the effects on public spending, you have to recognize what, that in, gen, in different generations, different things, public expenditure need, is needed for different things. And that has to go into that story too. Because if the baby boomers are going to need vast spending on social care because their children are out in the labor force earning money, that's a different type of greater demand on public expenditure than if they need it simply because they're living longer. Um, so I just would be interested to know what you think about those things. Yes, and I do have in the book a brief reference to your point. Um, but there, and I do, in the, in the context of these contracts, because a feminist would say that the, this list of contracts is one which have historically more, the burden has more been borne by women than men. Um, an evolutionary biologist might then say it's because women have tended to live longer than men and so are likely to be recipients of more care towards the end of their lives. But these are, you could argue that these exchanges are ones which, um, of which women are more likely to be the custodians than men. Once you, as I do in here, call, them, call it care rather than pay for or finance. Yes, so... Uh, just as, in answer to a previous question, you can sort of slice and dice this in terms of inequalities within a generation. So you can write a gender account of some of this. But again, the, I, the reason why I wrote the book was I, there are gender accounts of this that have already been written. And there may someone in this hall is very welcome to correct me, but I'm not aware of a book about post-war Britain that approaches it through this perspective. There are lots of, there is an American literature on this, but I'm not aware of a British book that just tries to do it on a cohort basis. And I think that should be put up there alongside inequality within generations and alongside the gender narrative. A couple of points. Uh, one of them is that perhaps you've overlooked some of the uh, disadvantages faced by uh, people of the, the baby boom generation. 
for example, the fact that they often entered um, careers with people just a few years older than them, born in what I describe as the golden generation in the early 1940s, who were going to occupy those positions uh, um, you know, for the next 20 or 30 years, and, and that will reduce the promotion prospects. Also, of course, they entered adulthood in a period of economic difficulties in the 1970s, etc. So that's one point, that the, some of the disadvantages that the baby boomers faced, um, you know, I would say that the, most, the, the best, the, the most fortunate generation were basically the Beatles and Bob Dylan generation. That's the golden generation, really. Just um, the, the one that... The, born at the, at the trough of the cycle in the early 1940s. I think that you will find that they both made an immense cultural contribution and were the beneficiaries of all kinds of things. The second point is I wonder how far what you've described will be self-correcting, for example, through um, declining house prices um, over the next generation or two as more houses come onto the market and declining equity values which will devalue uh, the shares that have been built up by uh, the baby boomers. Well there is a bit of a literature about I mean when you get in it's, it's a, which is uh, quite sophisticated about whether it's better to be a cutting edge boomer rather than a late boomer or rather than a trailing boomer and is there a conflict between those boomers in, born in the mid-40s and those boomers born in the mid-60s? Yeah, and I, I, I realise that. And that there is an argument that this was a... was particularly... Uh, that generation of had, in the, from the mid-40s, they had that extraordinary sort of flowering of, uh, as you say, Beatles and Bob Dylan in the 1960s. Though, it's interesting, doing some media on this in the last few days, uh, say on the Jeremy Vine programme on Radio 2, there were people phoning in who were in that generation who felt it had been very tough for them. And of course, within any cohort, it can be. For individuals whom it can be tough. But you're, you're right. And, uh, but I'm just trying to measure a group that's sufficiently substantial to be a coherent economic unit. And defined, as I say, I think by the fact that even at the low point in this boom, we didn't really get below 800,000 babies born. Now, on your second point, yeah, this goes back to the, one of the early questions. I quite agree. I think it is the fact that baby boomers have had a good deal so far doesn't follow that they will have a good deal for the rest of their lives. And uh, there are indeed scenarios in which it could all turn sour for the baby boomers. But to my mind, the most important single reason why it could turn south for the baby boomers is if the kids of the baby boomers come along behind, do not feel any obligation to them. And if I were, if, well, I am a baby boomer. As a baby boomer, that seems to me to be the biggest single issue. If, if the young generation feels somehow they've been let down by the baby boomers, so why exactly should we pay higher taxes for all their pensions and their health care? That's, that's what I would most worry about. And that's where there's an appeal to prudence um, uh, even if not to the highest ethics. Because you're right, the, the, the oldest baby boomers, on my account, are, are 65. So they've, got, they've probably got 15 years at least on average of life expectancy ahead of them. There are two or three questions in the middle. Could we start at the front and work back? That's probably... George, did you...? Looking at this uh, interesting graph, I was wondering if the uh, little boom in the 1970s corresponds to IVF and Louise Brown, but that's not really the question I had. Um, in terms of cohort effects, there's some not very substantial, but it's quite interesting research by Inglehart on value change in post-World uh, War II Europe. And I was just wondering if, I, I, I can't really quite remember when the post-materialists, as he called them, appear. But I think that's might just be that your first peak are the materialists and the second peak around that time are the post-materialists. I mean, Inglehart drew this distinction as if people were all or none, but uh, other theorists have pointed out that, you know, the German wants to drive a green Mercedes at 200 kilometers an hour down an autobahn, so it's that sort of mixture, but I think there might be from that analysis some interesting um, overlays to uh, 
this this particular cohort effect? Yeah, I mean, I, I do uh, I do think there's there's something in what you said. I'm trying to um, find the the evidence. I have a chapter on it in the in the book, and it, it's uh, it's called um, ages and and stages. And I do think that the um, you can have a kind of account in which there are several different factors um, at work. And you could argue that that's, if you think of it in terms of, this, these are the baby boomers who had a kind of easier, no, that's not really easy, who had the 1960s and who particularly enjoyed extraordinary surges of personal freedom. These are the ones for whom life has been the toughest. There's no, I mean, and that, this is way beyond my competence. Some people say that Generation Y have values that are more like the baby boomers. And um, so in terms of absolutely fabulous, kind of this is Patsy, and this is her daughter. Um, uh, much more stern. No, it's not Patsy's daughter, it's the other daughter. Uh, so you could argue that. Um, and I have a discussion where I say, look, there's, there's three different effects here. One is a... A life cycle effect, our values change as we go through the life cycle. One is a period effect, our values are shaped by the period to which we live, regardless of whether we're 20 or 50 or 80. And the third is a cohort effect, a kind of imprinting from experiences to formative age. And all three are linked together, but I certainly, I, I certainly think you, can, you could argue that the value, and I have got in the book some evidence, that the values of these successive cohorts do, do differ. Hello, hi there. Um, the audience raised a lot of interesting points in um, regards to class and women, healthcare, and so. And the gentleman pointed out, um, I was, I'm going to mention that in my second point, and it, the factor of education as well that should come into it, because many would say that the baby boomers had a superior education to maybe what the generation Y, which I'm one of them, have now. And he mentioned about post-materialism, and I wanted to just add to that, because now I think maybe my generation or the generation just before, it was more on maybe the baby boomers had more of a living within their means. So obviously they would have more savings compared to maybe what Generation Y or X would have now. So that's a few points I wanted to bring up. Yeah. What I like about your intervention, what I like about these kind of exchanges, when it starts getting a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous, and people have to start by confessing which age cohort they belong to, and they identify at themselves. Um, I would say that you know, on education, um, of course there's a great debate about educational standards and what's happened to education. I would, I would like to, I would focus on something slightly different, which is the character of education. Um, so, so sometimes one is told, well, you know, nowadays many more young people go to university, which is true, and I think is a very good thing that many more have that opportunity. But when, uh, and when the baby boomers were young, very many few of them went to university. But the ones who didn't go to university would have been going into apprenticeships, and in apprenticeships, an apprenticeship is an incredibly powerful form of intergenerational exchange. There is the, the, sort of the old silverback guy who passes on, it wouldn't normally in those days have been a man, who passes on what he knows to the next generation. Uh, what we've now got is forms of education where people may go to college, even at university, where much more of a week is spent with your own age group. So my view is that the kind of pattern, the type of experience that you have is one where we've shifted from quite a strong intergenerational exchange and intergenerational connection to one where if you visit an FE college or even university, people spend most of their time in quite a narrow age cohort and relatively little with um, an older generation directly transmitting uh, knowledge or experience onto them. So I think that that's where I think education has changed most dramatically. Um, a decline in the amount of, of direct intergenerational exchange com compared with the sort of model of vocational training that we used to have. Or do you want to come back? Well, could we, there are some people waiting. Sorry. Could we, um, there's one person who's been quite patient up the back here and somebody else in front of him. And then there are two or three over the other side. So. Thank you. Um, would it help if uh, the generation, the sort of late generation X's, 
and the uh, Generation Ys voted more so that uh, governments wouldn't feel the need to continuously bribe the baby boomers. Well, I'm thinking particularly of free bus passes, free swimming. Um, yep. Just the two that irritate yep. me. So I'm going to whiz through. There was a chart, there was a slide I, to save time that I didn't um, give you before. Let's see if I can find it. Sorry, it's going to take a little moment. But uh, yeah, I agree with you fundamentally that it would be a good thing if we had increased um, voting by the younger generation. And the, uh, my view is that we're into a vicious circle where the younger generation think, oh, politicians don't do enough for us, so why bother to vote? When they, it's absolutely a reason why they where they should vote. And now we're nearly there. You're being very patient. Um, I'm about to show you the slide. Yeah, here we are. This is one I skimmed through before. This is a very interesting question from a DWP research report. When you t ask people, the cost of state pensions is going to rise, what, uh, what should we do about it? And responses by age. And you can see here, allow the pension to fall in value. 22% of young people are willing to let it fall in value. 13% of 50 to 69 year olds willing to let it fall in value. Uh, well, um, adjust the age of pension. Um, younger people are much more willing to contemplate that. They're further away from it. They want the, uh, and older generations much more reluctant. Raising tax to pay for the cost of a higher pension. 50 to 69-year-olds, 52% of them are in favour of that, and only 31%. So this is, I, I think, an example where, um, as I say, in the context of attitudes to pensions, where we can see a clue to sort of voting behaviour and attitudes by age cohort. Um, but yeah, I think that, that, we, that in a healthy democracy, people of whatever age, um, um, one would encourage them to vote, and shifts in in voting participation uh, and what you've got at the moment with the baby boomers is we're a very large voting group and we have a high propensity to vote within that group so that, that kind of magnifies the electoral power of the baby boomers yep there was somebody behind the pillar and then I'll drift this way I'm not sure about the age distribution within the room ah you see everybody starts getting moved, sensitive to this we've moved this way and I think after that you'll have to grab David individually cheers uh, thank you very much for your uh, talk this evening um, the question I had is, how useful is immigration in bringing in an increased number of contributors uh, to compensate as the baby boomers move into retirement? Well, in the short run, it may uh, help. But of course, the uh, immigrants themselves in turn grow old. So it is not um, a long-term solution to a kind of demographic challenge. But uh, in, the sh in the short run, you can uh, see, I mean, I have a brief discussion of this in a, in a chapter to which Chris Cook uh, contributed a lot. And you can, you can see, at the end of the war, there was a deliberate pro program of recruiting people from the continent of Europe to plug what was seen as a, a problem of a shrinking working population because of those low birth rates in the 1930s. So you can, it can help for a time, but it can't in the long run change the, the ratios. Um, and I do think, uh, and, and as, as I said also, you could argue that that dramatic fall in the late 70s, early 80s, created the environment for the extraordinary flow of people from Eastern Europe 25 years later. Uh, but I don't think it's a sort of sustainable long-term solution, but it, it clearly can help if there are particular sort of troughs in the, uh, troughs in the, in the age distribution. There were a few questions over on this side. Um, <clears throat> you spoke earlier of not having a 10-point plan as such, but presumably do have uh, a notion, if you like, a tendency what would that be in these circumstances? Well, as I said, I, I, and I did try to give some examples from education, pension age, budget deficit, but underneath that, I do... The origins of my book lie in my wife saying to me, how on earth are our kids going to get started on the housing ladder? And having 
um, be my party spokesman on pensions for many years, how are the younger generation ever going to build up the kind of funded pensions that certainly I have as a member of parliament and that many people in my uh, age group have. So when you just look at the, for me as a conservative that believes in spreading opportunity and spreading property ownership, uh, I think that one of the most important ways of spreading opportunity and property ownership is across the generations. And when I look at the most important forms of property ownership in Britain today, I think there's a real problem about ensuring that the younger generation have access to them. So I care about that. Uh, and I do think it's, the gentleman asked about education, I do think it reminds us of the importance of, of providing, alongside the sort of the physical capital of ownership, as well opportunities in the education system for the younger generation. Yeah, and I, I feel that um, for, for in my constituency surgery, I have a stream of young people coming through who are trying to do the right thing, but you know, just finding a decent place, not even a house can be a flat or whatever, finding a decent place for them and their kids is incredibly difficult in the southeast. And I think we in the... Uh, I think we are sometimes not sufficiently sensitive to the type of pressures that the younger generation are under. Yeah. So I, I'm uh, an unlikely shop steward for the uh, interests of the younger generation, but I do think that, they, that they, are, they are in danger of having a raw deal. And the paradox, the story of the interconnection, is if they have a raw deal, then the point is that boomers ourselves, as we go, or grow older, they find in turn we have a raw deal as well. I think there was one last question over here that we'll take and then you'll have to grab David individually. Yeah, I'm inclined to believe that the baby boomers are sort of selfish more than lucky and I don't think they will do the right thing. So given that they do have this outsized political power, how are we going to stop them systematically losing their children and grandchildren? Um, I mean, I think that you make no policy recommendations because you realise it would be political suicide to take them on. <laughs> well, I, as I say, I think that there are some policies that follow on from that, but I'm, I'm more optimistic than you are. I'm more optimistic than you because I... This is where the perhaps the, mo the, the, perhaps the most philosophical chapter, which tries to explain how cooperation evolves, how reciprocal obligations involved. It does, it does seem to me that, the, that for me as a conservative, the most powerful form of the social contract is a contract between generations, and it is in each generation's interest to maintain it. Uh, and I do think that that is an appeal, and I then have the evidence, that, as I said, that was my forestry example, that is appeal to which people emotionally respond. Uh, so I don't think we're at the stage of direct action by younger people whose interests are systematically ignored by baby boomers. I think we must, uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do in the book is just get some, do some consciousness raising and I'm very grateful to the people in this, in this hall for the interest you've taken in it and the people in this hall in particular who helped assemble the data which I do think makes out a pretty compelling case that that generation, for whatever reason, that generation to which I belong, does seem to have done particularly well when it comes both to property and the jobs market and the welfare state. Okay, um, I think we'll draw it to a close now. There are some books for sale outside, oh. and I'm sure David will be <laughs> milling around yeah. if you do want to um, grab them for some one-to-one. It's just my pleasure to thank you very much for a very stimulating and thoughtful talk. And as we age, um, hopefully we'll do it gracefully. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.